Good morning. My name is Drew and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Church of the Redeemer. This morning, we are going to begin a series on the, in the book of Hebrews that is going to take us all the way through the rest of the school year and even into June. So a number of weeks, we're going to be looking at this book that many of you probably have read but may not be very familiar with. It's very intimidating to me. Uh, I told the guys as we decided to do that, that, and they didn't listen to me, and so they decided to do it anyway, and I'm kind of stuck. So we're going to move forward. But this is a really hard book. It's uh, confusing. There's a lot that, that we're not sure about. Uh, for example, there, there is a lot of scholarship that's been done, but there, there really is not consensus about who wrote this book, about why the book was written, about who it was written to. Unlike the letters of Paul, where you know Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the churches in Galatia, and we can kind of piece together the historical details. It's not true with this, with this letter. And because we don't really know who wrote it, we're not really sure who it was written to, what the circumstances of it being written were, it's hard to know why the, the letter was written in the first place. So some of the basics, that, before we read this passage of Scripture and then kind of dive in, uh, some of the basics is I've kind of thought about this and prayed about this and studied this this past week. It seems pretty clear that this book, the letter of Hebrews, was written to Jewish Christians who were being tempted either by persecution or peer pressure or some kind of social pressure to drift away from their Christianity back into some of the religious forms and functions of Judaism. Uh, It was written to show them how the work of Christ made all the other religious ceremonies and offices obsolete and that to be a Christian meant you had to leave all of that stuff behind. And so... It was written, and the main substance of the letter is Christology, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But ultimately, the letter is about how we follow him faithfully. And if you look at the front of your worship folder, you'll see the kind of the theme verse that we're going to kind of go back to over and over again from the letter is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where the writer says that the goal of all he's written is that we would throw off the sin that so easily entangles us and hinders us, and that we would run the race set out for us with perseverance. But then he goes on to say that the only way that we can do that is to be constantly, consistently, intently, continually, even obsessively looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So as we go through this book, that's what we want to do. We want to obsessively be looking to Jesus. And we want to do that this morning too. Uh, And so if you come with me, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1. The whole chapter is printed for you in your worship folder. I'm actually only going to read the first four verses. So we're just going to look at the first four verses of Hebrew 1 uh, and talk together about what they teach us about who Jesus is and what he calls us to do and to be. Okay, let's read, beginning in verse 1. The letter begins like this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Three things I want us to see from this passage this morning about Jesus, and I think that it teaches us about Jesus that he is, and they're just your three points there in your outline, that Jesus is the final word, that he is the authoritative word, and that ultimately he is God's gracious word to us. And those are just kind of the three things we want to kind of walk through in these four verses. Okay, let's start 
uh, with this idea that Jesus is the final word. And I want you to see first that what the passage teaches us, and this is important for us, is that God, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks. Uh, let's start right there, because that's where Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews starts. He says, long ago, verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Now, Christianity then claims... I see a flurry of activity. Am I not working up here? Can you guys hear me okay? No. Thank you. I will yell. How about that? David, are you bringing me another microphone? Is that what you're doing? Thank you. I'm just trucking along, and they're back there, like, freaking out. And then I finally look up to see. Let's keep going. Okay? Uh, Let's begin with this. Christianity claims that God has revealed himself. That the God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, has, has revealed himself. And that's a pretty amazing thing if you stop to think about it. That God did not create the world and then step away and kind of just flow it off into Never Never Land, somewhere out there at the, the, the far end of the universe. He has spoken. He's made himself known. He, he's come in. He's moved close because he wants a relationship with us. I, I don't know if you're reading CBR with us, but this past week I was really struck by this because on Monday we read Genesis chapter 1 and we read Matthew chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, it's just amazing. Uh, after God has created the heavens and the earth, he makes the man and the woman, and he takes them, and he puts them in a garden, and he comes, and it's a place where he comes and says he walks and talks with them in the cool of the day. So he put them in this place where he could come and literally face-to-face interact with them and talk with them and have a relationship with them. Just amazing. I mean, what? No God does that. And yet we're told in the story as you go along that the, that the result of our sin was that we were exiled We were sent away from God. There were no more walks in the cool of the day. No more conversations face-to-face with him because our sin had alienated us. It had separated us from him. There was distance now. There was separation. There was alienation. No more access. But then you keep reading and you come to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph about the son that is going to be born to him that will be the son of the Most High in his name. We're told will be Emmanuel and he will, again, be God with us. And so in Jesus, God is, once again, coming to us, coming down to dwell with us, coming, coming in to have a relationship with us. He's quite literally coming to walk and talk with us again. It's amazing. I mean, the God of the Bible is not a silent observer of our lives. He's come. He's spoken. But the second thing that Hebrews claims is that God has spoken... And he's spoken ultimately and finally through his son. And this son, of course, is Jesus, the word of God made flesh, come to dwell with us. And there are two statements here in these verses, verse 3, that show us how it is that God has spoken through the son. And it's important we take time to look at them. So look there with me. First, Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God. If you have a different translation, it might say something like he's the brightness of God's glory. And the idea is that Jesus mirrors or reflects the glory of God. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus does what God does. Jesus acts as God acts. Jesus feels as God feels. He does all that God does, and God does all that he does. So that in Jesus, there has been provided for us a perfect, visible expression of the reality of the invisible God. The invisibles become visible. But then Hebrews goes on to say he's not only the radiance of the glory of God, 
But he is also the exact imprint of his nature. And the Greek word there is literally the word character. It refers to a stamp so that when, you know, this old, when you were a kid or kids, if you know, you know, you have these stamps and then you put the ink on the stamps, these rubber, you know, impressions that are made and you dip them in the ink and then you put them on the page, whatever you're doing. And the, the picture that comes out on the page is the exact replica of the image that was on the rubber, you know, surface that you that you imprinted with the ink. That, that's the idea that that Jesus is stamped with the very being and character of God. He's the exact correspondence to the Father. But the, the only subtle difference, I think, between these two phrases is that he not only then is, excuse me, he not only does all that the Father does and the Father does all that he does, but what Hebrews is saying is Jesus is all that God is and God is all that he is. God is omnipotent. And so is Jesus. But Jesus is humble and self-sacrificing. And so so is the Father. And so you see this correspondence here. So therefore, Jesus' words are the words of God. Jesus' actions are the actions of God. Jesus' character is the character of God. In Jesus, God is finally and ultimately making himself known. The invisible God is becoming visible. And the implication is just this, that apart from Jesus, then we can't know him. We're completely in the dark concerning him. He is the ultimate and final word, okay? Now, the God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He's spoken ultimately and finally in Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to wrestle with in these verses. And I use that word wrestle on purpose because it's a truth that is both hard and ultimately good. It's hard because if it's true... If God is real, and if he's spoken through Jesus, then in light of who Jesus is and what he does, then he is spoken authoritatively. He is the authoritative word. Look at how Hebrews describes him in these verses. There are three things. If you just kind of pick through it a little bit with me for just a minute. He is, verse 2, the heir of all things, we're told. Now, what is an heir? An heir is a person who is legally entitled to the property of another person upon that person's death. Don't stretch the analogy too far. Here's here's what what this is meant to mean. Jesus is the owner in waiting. And what is it that God owns that Jesus stands to inherit? Well, it's not a hotel chain. And it's not a real estate empire. What is it? He is the heir of all things. That's the Bible's way of saying that Jesus through his work, is going to come into his ownership of everything, including you and me. Every square inch of the universe is his by right. Every earthworm that crawls in the mud, every star that illuminates the sky at night, every nation, every city, every individual life, they are all his. Because it was through him that God created the world, verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made, John 1 says. Colossians 1, for by him all things, created, all things were created. All things were created through him, and therefore all things were created for him, Paul says. But then there's a third thing here. So he is the heir of all things because he created. Uh, it was through him that God created the world. But then if you skip down to the latter part, of verse 3, not only has he created you and I, but we're told that ultimately he upholds us and the entire universe by the word of his power. 
And that word there means to carry or to support or even to energize. And so what the scripture is trying to teach us is that every breath that you and I breathe is on loan from him. Every beat of your heart is because his power and life is pulsating through your body. Every brain snaps, right? Every muscle contraction is because he is there sustaining you by the word of his power. Have you thought about that? So Jesus owns us because he created us and he upholds us by the word of his power and therefore the teaching of this part of the scripture is, and I think the whole scripture is, that therefore he is the point of reference for every other thing in the universe. And that's what both Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 is trying to teach us. Here in Hebrews 1, the result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, verse 4, is that he's become superior. You see that? Having become much superior to the angels. And we'll get to what all that means. But Jesus is superior. He is, he is ultimate. He is, it's, a, it's a word that refers to a comparison that he is better than everything else. He is more important than everything else. And Paul's word in Colossians 1 is that he might be preeminent, that he might be first, the most important, the most cherished, the most valued, the most esteemed, the most honored. Jesus becomes the reference point. He is for us as his people. He's the reference point, the fixed point upon which everything else revolves. Now, I want, to, uh, I want to apply this for us for a few minutes, okay, so that you can see kind of how this works itself out uh, in, in our lives. Let's take just the example of Epiphany, okay? So we're here and we're celebrating Epiphany this morning. All these candles are so beautiful. Thank you, ladies, those of you who did that. And, and the point that what we're kind of trying to grasp with this idea of celebrating Epiphany is that Jesus came, and in his coming, he came that the gospel might go to all of the nations of the earth until every tribe and tongue and people and nation are represented and gather around his throne to worship him at the end of the ages. Do you believe that? Right? I mean, that, Jesus came not just to save uh, Jewish people. He, praise God, we are here, Gentiles, 2,000 years later, because the purpose of God in sending the Son was that the message of his Son would go to the ends of the earth. That is God's great desire. It is his great purpose and mission in the world that the nations of the earth would come to worship him. And he intends to use us, his church, to accomplish this mission. So then what that means is, is that the details of our lives then and our decision-making process and our vocational choices and all these things, that, that Jesus and his work and his dreams and his plans and his goals and his mission in the world would become the reference point for, by which we live the rest of our lives. Now, let me just go. This is how I want to do this. I want to go through the different segments of the congregation and just apply. How is it that his mission in the world becomes the reference point of our lives so that he might in all things be preeminent? Kids. I'm glad the kids are in here this morning. Kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You see, the starting place for answering that question is the purpose of God in Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What it means to be a Christian is to dream about how to make that happen and to to just live in expectation of what God's going to do in your life for the purpose of of whatever little, you know, small part you might play in that great work. Second, high schoolers. So if you're in high school, listen to me. 
How do you decide which college to go to? Boy, I look good in orange and blue. Nobody looks good in orange and blue. Okay? Nobody looks good. Oh, thank you. That was probably Mr. Thornhill in the back somewhere or somebody. Amen. Right? Well, my parents went to this school. Okay? Uh, I remember when I was a college kid, why is it that no, why, I, why is it that when Christian, you know, college applicants are applying to colleges, they're not asking the question, which is the college that I'm needed at the most? Because you can go to, you know, Auburn University or Clemson University where there are 450 people in RUF and then another 250 people in, uh, you know, in campus outreach, and that's great. And praise God for those ministries. But, but at some point, if you, there's a line where you cross up in the northeast where on, on campuses in the northeast, there's one Christian for every thousand people. So do you see, how does the work of Christ and the, the mission of Christ in the world begin to inf- become the point of reference for how we make decisions? Third, college kids home for Christmas. How do you choose a major? Right? I mean, how do you begin to make life decisions about, because what are, you know, about what the trajectory your life is going to take? That's what college is about. How does, how does the mission of God in the world in Christ become the point of reference that he might be preeminent, not only during your college years, but for the rest of your life? How, how do you begin to make decisions based upon that? Parents, what are you aiming your kids at? You know, what are your dreams for them? Oh, and I, I don't want to say what I'm about to say. Because you see, it has to be more than that they would get good grades so they can get into a good college, so they can get a good job, so they can make a good living. That's not Christianity. That's America, the American dream. Uh, my favorite missionary story, if I could just stop for a second, is a, a letter that Jim Elliott, who you know, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, who sent his parents who were very, very disappointed when they found out that he was going to go be a missionary in Ecuador. (laughs) Here's the letter he wrote to them. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing, listen to this. I mean, this, this is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned of us, us of, when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Parents, can you imagine getting a letter like this from your kid? He says, grieve not. If your son seems to desert you. <laughs> but rather, seeing the will of God done gladly, rejoice. Rejoice. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they are as an heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows but for but to shoot? So, mom, dad, with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's host. Right? Retirees, or those of you who are approaching retirement, You know, after you've raised your kids and you have time and money to spend on whatever you want, what do you spend it on? I mean, what does retirement 
with Jesus' mission in the world as the point of reference look like? That he, might be super, that, he, that he might be preeminent in your retirement. I think John Piper said it, said it well. He says, not only do you have the time to go on the mission field, but you get discounted fares. Right? You see what I'm trying to, you see what I'm trying to grasp at here? In everything, Jesus preeminent, Paul says. His person, his purposes, his mission, his words, the reference point for everything else. And that's hard. It's hard because our sinful hearts desire their own preeminence. Sin is the heart's desire for its own preeminence. For its own preeminence. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be free to live our lives however we want. And that's what makes every relationship hard. I mean, in every relationship, the other person, you know, makes demands. They have a will just like you have a will, and their will crosses your will all the time. They contradict you. They disagree with you. They, they tell you you're wrong. I mean, that's what makes marriage so hard. So you're committed to this person, and you love them, and, and yet there are all these areas of disagreement, and in some places you can come to a compromise. And, but there are these other places where no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you, you know, work at it, the other person is completely unbending. They're stubborn. It makes you angry because you're stubborn. I mean, that's marriage, that's friendship, that's parenting. These two wills colliding, so what do you do? I mean, how do you deal with a relationship like this where the other person has a will, and the will comes in and contra- you crushes yours, and you've got to work it out? Well, in the old movie that was remade, The Stepford Wives, the men of Stepford, Connecticut, dealt with their wives who had wills of their own and who made demands on them by putting little microchips in their brains that made them like robots. Do you remember this? They became women who were unquestionably obedient and submissive. The women were happy to do whatever it is their husbands needed them to do and never made any demands, never asked for any help. But of course, what happened was the personal relationship was, was lost because you can't have a personal relationship with an appliance. And if the person you're married to only ever says, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear, that's not a person. And that, of course, is the point of the movie, but here's the application. This is what our sinful hearts want to do with God. We want to relate to God on our terms, not his. We want to define him, not be defined by him. We want to live, uh, his, we want to live our lives, I'm sorry, we want him to live his life with us as the reference point for all he does in the world. And yet God has spoken to us, and it's an authoritative word. And therefore, what this means is that God gets to tell me what to do. I don't get to tell him what to do. But we want, what we want is a God who never challenges us, never contradicts us, never crosses our will, a God who's happy to be in the kitchen whipping up whatever we want to eat while we lounge on the couch watching football. And guys, it doesn't work in marriage. And it won't work with the God of the universe either because the word he's spoken in Jesus, by definition, is an authoritative word. He commands us. We don't command him. Our desires are not the point of reference for all he's doing. His purpose, his mission, his words are the point of reference for all that we do. And that's hard. Very, very hard. But it's also good. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean when I say it's not only hard, but it's good. It's good that Jesus is an authoritative word. This was a really great Christmas for the Bennett family, but particularly for Dad, because it was the first Christmas in many years, a long time that I can remember, where Christmas Eve did not involve having to stay up late to assemble a dollhouse or a play kitchen or to put together a swing set, okay? I am mechanically challenged. 
I mean, reading assembly required on the outside of a box that Ashley brings home, uh, I go into cold sweats. It's true. Because, because no matter what it is, when I'm done with it, it isn't right. And so I have one hope. And that hope is that inside the box there are words. And preferably not just words, but words with pictures. Right? That illustrate step by step what I'm supposed to do. And so unless, see, think about, unless the person who made the thing I'm trying to put together and knows how it's supposed to work... Unless the maker shows me what to do, I have no shot of getting it right. You can laugh, but it's true. And I'm not alone, I know that. But you see, this is a parable for all of life. The reason it is, the reason it is not only hard, but also good that God has spoken authoritatively through Jesus is because he is the maker, and because he's the maker, he knows how we work, and he's even provided the pictures in Jesus to show us. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he did not snap his fingers and there was light and sun and moon. What did he do? We read it in Genesis 1. He spoke. There were words. God said, hello, light, and there was light. He said, hello, land, and there was land and so on. But do you see what that means? It means that everything exists, exists because of God's word, because there was a word. Everything exists, therefore, for a purpose. God has a design for everything he's created, and you can only find yourself, you can only find purpose and joy and meaning and happiness in God's purpose and design. And the only way to put together a life that works is to pay attention to his words and follow the illustrations. And repentance means just this then, that you can only experience a relationship with God on his terms. And so just like in every other relationship, what happens is, is his will comes across your will. It crosses your will all the time. And when his will does that, you have to adjust. There are going to be times where you're thinking, you know, yes, 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 yes. And God says, no, 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 no. And you have to submit your yes to his no. That's repentance. And here's where this is happening in my life at the moment. I, one particular relationship that's been very hard came to a head at Christmas. And um, uh, I, I discovered, unfortunately, that there's a lot of anger and bitterness and... and um, uh, hurt in my heart towards this particular person, and uh, I, I really lashed out in a way that was very inappropriate, but I could feel my heart saying, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, can't do this anymore, and yet as much as I say that in my heart, all I can hear is the whisper of God saying, aren't you glad I didn't say that about you? And so, I mean, th- there really is this wrestling match in my heart right now to say, I, you know, in this case, it's no, 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 no. And God's saying, yes, 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 yes. So you see, where, the, where his will crosses your will, there's a sense of you have to adjust. That's repentance. Now, let me wrap this up if I can. So Jesus is the final word, and he is the authoritative word, which means he's the reference point for all the rest of life, superior, more important than anything else. Paul says, in everything, Jesus preeminent, which means when his will crosses your will, you submit to his will. You adjust your desires to his purpose and mission. And that's what, that's what sanctification is. It's that continual process of doing that. But in order for him to become preeminent in your life, he has to first be preeminent in your heart. And so what we've, we have to just wrap up, and why I'm so glad we're celebrating this meal together this morning, is how then does Jesus become preeminent in your heart? And I'm kind of out of time, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. This is what we talk about, and we're going to talk about it over and over again. But in order 
For Jesus to become preeminent in your heart, you have to become furiously obsessed. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Furiously obsessed with the grace of the gospel. I mean, the way Jesus becomes superior in your heart, preeminent in your heart, is to obsess over the gospel, to go back to it over and over again, to be working it out, working it into your life, thinking out the implications of it, be constantly going back to the truth of the gospel. Because you see, if Jesus is not preeminent in your heart, then something else is. And that something else, whatever it is, is your heart's treasure and beauty. It's the thing your life is centered on. And for the people the letter of Hebrews was written to, it was their religion and their national identity. That was the thing that mattered the most to them. And so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is he's saying, because of what Jesus has done, verse 4, he is much superior to the angels who for the Jews were the mediators of the law. And for the Jewish, for the Jewish people, the law and their identity as God's chosen people who follow the law and who obey God, that was the most important thing in their life. They, they believed at the bottom of their heart that the way you get in a relationship with God is you do the right things and you perform the right rituals and you, you do all the right stuff and, and you live a really religious life and that gets you favor with God. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. No. The message that Jesus brings, the message of the gospel is preeminent to the message of the angels, and therefore he is, he is superior because of what he's done. You see, whatever that rival might be, it'll force you to give your life to it and serve it. It'll sl- enslave you to serve its own preeminence, but not Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of master, and that's what the text is trying to help us see. I mean, think about it. How hard is it for a wife to be constantly submitting herself to a selfish husband? I mean, why should she have to be the one constantly adjusting her desires to his? Why can't he ever adjust his desire to hers? Well, of course he's supposed to. That's the only way marriage works. So you bring that into our relationship with God, and to be in relationship with God means that his words are authoritative, that they are absolute, that he is the point of reference for everything we do and say and believe and, and work out in our lives. So if I'm, I'm constantly having to adjust my life to his purposes. But how do you do that? I mean, the way you wrestle your heart into obedience to God is to see how he had to adjust in order to love you. See, unlike the selfish husband, he's adjusted. Jesus becomes preeminent in your heart when you see him making your needs preeminent in his life. Now, what do I mean? How did God adjust in order to meet our needs? Well, the greatest need we had is that we're sinners. And the only way for a holy God to enter into a relationship with us was to adjust to that. And that's what Hebrews means when it says here in verse 3 that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ adjusted to the fact that we're sinners by going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that God could once again come and walk and talk with us. And Hebrews says, so great is his work that when he ascended back to the Father, he sat down. Down. Do you know what that means? It means his work is done. There's nothing left for him to do. And this is the gospel that we're called to obsess over. Hebrews warns about what will happen if we don't, that we'll drift away, over, not overnight, but slowly. We'll, we'll just imperceptibly grow cold and indifferent to God, and other things will come in and steal our affections. And so we've got to obsess, and Hebrews is going to help us obsess over the truth that this table puts before our eyes. Now I need to finish. But just before I do, um, Jesus is the final word. He's the authoritative word. He is the gracious word. There are two means by way of application 
by which God has said that, that he will continue to reveal himself to us and speak to us, to confront us of our sin, bring us, bring us to a, a fresh knowledge of the gospel, and that we for, should therefore pay careful attention. Two things, just two points of application. And the first is that the scripture is God's word to us. That as God, we, we talk about God revealing himself and making himself known through words that he speaks. The rest of Hebrews chapter 1 is an extended argument for Christ's supremacy over the angels. But look at the way the writer of Hebrews makes his argument. It's by quoting the Old Testament scriptures. So the scripture is God's authoritative word for our lives. The scripture is the way God reveals himself. The scripture is the way you hear God speak. And that's why it's so important that we read it. And it's why we're so intent on reading it together. Join us in reading CBR. Would you? Because we need to hear his words so that we can repent accordingly. But secondly, not only does Scripture stand as God's word to us, but I think there's an application here that the words of others stand as God's word to us as well. So sin, by definition, is self-deceiving. And we're all self-deceived. And that, therefore, the voice of others is meant by God to be his voice because your friends and your spouses and even your kids, I've learned, can see into your lives more clearly than you can. And so one of the things that Ashley and I decided to do this year is instead of formulating, you know, typically around the new year you go away and you say, what are my New Year's resolutions for this year? I think I'm, I need to do this and I need to do this. And here are the top three or four things that I really think I need to work on in my life. The problem with that is, is the top three or four things that you would pick on to work in your life are not the three or four things that are really killing you. You don't know what those things are. And so we said, what if, what if we started to ask people, what do you think my three New Year's resolutions should be? I said that in the, in the, in the office this week, and, and Steve Straub kind of did this number. Do you feel how scary that is? What do you think I ought to work on? Because, you know, number one. Really? I need to work on that? But you see, what we're doing is, is we're, is we're coming to realize what we need, the, the authoritative word of God to come in. Because without it, we're trying to put piece of life together without the instruction, you know, the, the instructions and the illustrations there in front of us. And we don't stand, a, I mean, it's going to be just like it is when I try to put something together. It's not going to work. Uh, and so what we need, we need hearts that are willing to, to hear and to obey the voice of God as it comes and to adjust our lives when his real will crosses ours. And the way you do that is to see that the one who commands you and demands your loyalty and obedience is one who ultimately was willing to suffer and die for you. And so when he speaks, you can trust him. See, that's the point. And so let's come to this table this morning. Would you pray with me as we do? Lord Jesus, uh, as we come to this table, make yourself known to us in a powerful way. Um, reveal your great heart of love for us, uh, that we might um, find the grace and the courage to adjust our lives to your purposes. Because what you call us to is good. It's hard, but it's good. Help us uh, as we wrestle to believe that. And use this table this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we do that, we're going to sing a song, right?
it will be nearly impossible for you to wrestle your heart toward obedience and Jesus being preeminent in all things in your life and in your heart until you first see how you and your needs uh, were preeminent in his. This table, the church is historically referred to as a visible word of that truth. That he was driven to the cross because of love for you and I. Because it was what loving us required. It was our greatest need. And so we come this morning to celebrate um, his great love for us. Hoping that it will melt our hearts. uh, That because we did nothing and we gained everything, that when he asked we would do anything. That is the move of the gospel in the heart. I would uh, caution you. And warn you by way of self-examination that every, every month when we celebrate this meal, we, we call you to really think through your life in two areas. This is first, a table for those who have been baptized and received into membership in the Christian church. This is a table for those who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a baptized Christian, then we, uh, in good standing, or you've made public profession of faith in Jesus Christ in some church at some point, we invite you to come to this table. If not, then what you need is not this bread or this cup. You need the Lord Jesus. And we would implore you to put your faith and hope and trust in him and come and talk to us. And then when we celebrate this meal again next month, please come and partake. Uh, but secondly, not only are you a Christian as your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but are you at peace? See, this is a table where we, where we celebrate God reconciling himself to us through the blood of his son. And therefore, it will be hypocrisy for us to come to celebrate and to enjoy and to sing about and to, um, to feast upon the reality of God's love for us in Christ reconciling us to himself when we are not reconciled to one another. And so there are going to be times where this is a meal that's going to, to develop in us the habit of really pursuing peace with one another and reconciliation, which the Bible says is very, very important. And where there's not peace, where there's, where there's a need for reconciliation, the Bible says you need to go. And you, need to, and you need to do the work of being reconciled to your brother and then come uh, and celebrate this meal. And so I've got to lead you in that this morning. And you're going to see that I'm not going to partake of the elements. It's because there's work I've got to do in my own heart. I, I, and so don't, I hope that don't let that weird you out. There are going to be times where the reality of our lives are not going to reflect what we say we believe to be true about God's love for us in Christ. And so as a means of repentance... If that's you this morning, then what you need is to go to the Lord Jesus, not to come to this table. And so I'm going to lead us, uh, and you're going to see me leading us in that way this morning. Uh, So continue to pray for me and pray for one another, okay? And so we come now uh, to this amazing feast that God has set before us. Um, Come joyfully and come reverently as we celebrate it together. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, having given thanks to the Father... He said, this is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is uh, the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus commands us, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. And as we do, we're told that we proclaim his death until the Lord comes again. And so let's do that uh, together this morning as we joyfully and reverently come to partake of this feast that he sets before us. Let's pray. And as I pray, servers, if you would come and help me distribute this, please. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that you, who are the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, that you, word of God made flesh, have come to dwell among us, to reveal to us the Father's heart for us, 
And so we gladly come now to celebrate this meal that you have commanded us to eat together that would be the continual reminder of the ultimate truth of what you revealed of the Father to us, and that is that he loves us with an infinite abiding love. Would you open our hearts to the reality of your authoritative command of our lives through the glimpse we get at this table of just how willing you were to adjust your life to meet our needs. Lead us to faith and repentance as we celebrate this meal together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come as you feel led. When I, when I distribute the elements to people, I always say, uh, I hold it out to them and say, this is the body of Christ for you. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. That is not because we believe uh, as some branches of the churches do, that, that somehow this bread becomes the literal physical body of Christ, or that this cup becomes the literal physical blood of Christ. We don't believe that, but we do believe that in a very meaningful, powerful, very real, tangible way, Christ is present with us as we celebrate this meal. So when we eat, we are in a spiritual, mysterious way Feasting, we are feeding ourselves on his body and blood. That we're feasting and, and feeding our faith and our hearts on his sacrificial love for us. And so as you eat, this, this is nourishment for your soul. So knowing that then, take the bread. This is the body of Christ for you. And then taking the cup the blood of Christ for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your great love for us. Thank you for the promise that even when our relationships get sideways and we can't celebrate communion, that it does not change the passion uh, with which you love us. That you love us as passionately in our sin as you do uh, when we do everything right. Uh, We're so grateful for that. Would you use this meal to do what you promised to do with it, that is to increase our faith? to lead us to faith and repentance, that we might produce a greater obedience to you, that you might truly be preeminent in all things in our lives, that you might get the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is a word to take with you as you go, uh, reminding you, as we heard this morning, uh, lest we drift away, to pay very careful attention to what it is we've heard. Uh, So take this as a reminder uh, that if your faith and your hope are in Christ, he is preeminent. Uh, and this should increase your faith, give you the ability to go from here, asking him to make himself more so in your life so that that begins to work itself out into the everyday. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.